from Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show. So we're basically treating these little patients and doing microsurgical implantation of tiny, tiny bits of tumor and putting it in the orthotopic, which is just a fancy word for the correct place. So if Fritz does a surgery and takes a little tiny piece out of a tissue, we're gonna stitch it in to that same place on the mouse. Well, we've come a long way, sort of, but if you treat people with cancer, or God forbid you or someone you love is fighting for life, the first thing you seek is control over the situation. The process of determining which therapy will target that cancer and present the least side effects is scary and frustrating for everyone. We're moving the needle now with many different treatments that focus on different types of cancer, immunotherapies like monoclonal antibodies and checkpoint inhibitors, therapeutic vaccines, CAR T cell therapy, radiation and proton therapies, and of course, so many kinds of chemotherapy. But trial and error inside a patient or someone that I love is a dangerous and time-consuming method of identifying the best treatments. Sure, you've heard of the process of testing different cocktails or treatments on tumors in a lab's Petri dish, certainly not the best method. As recently as February 2nd of this year, the National Cancer Institute published an article saying that PDX mouse models, patient-derived xenograft, are reliable stand-ins for human tumors. They're created by implanting a fragment of human tumor into a mouse, and I quote, they largely retain the genetics of the human tumors from which they were initially created. I bet you're listening now. Well, today, we have some top experts on the subject associated with an operation called Certus Oncology Solutions, Inc., and they are arming the healthcare industry and pharmaceutical companies, and us as patients, with a more powerful targeted weapon in the fight against cancer. This is medicine, we're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. Of course, first, my co-host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. Nice to be here. We have three special guests who are luminaries in the fight against cancer. Dr. Fritz Eilber, a professor of surgery, division of surgical oncology with a dual appointment in the Department of Molecular and Medical Pharmacology. He's also a director in UCLA's Sarcoma Clinical Translational Research Program with the Johnson's Comprehensive Cancer Center. How you doing, Fritz? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Dr. Arun Singh, an associate professor with the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Oncology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, whose research is focused on developing novel therapies for patients with sarcomas. Dr. Singh, how you doing? I'm well, thank you, sir. And Peter Elman, the CEO of Certus Oncology Solutions, a precision oncology company located down in San Diego. He's a serial entrepreneur who's joined us to talk about the remarkable things that this company is doing. Thanks for joining. Nice to be here, Bill. Dr. Singh, I'm going to pick on you first. Why does it seem that after decades and hundreds of billions of dollars spent in research, treating cancer patients is still more of a mystery than it is a predictable process? Uh, well, uh, you can give me a big question there. The easy answer is cancer is a very difficult problem. If we dig a little deeper, we find out that cancer is really not one problem. It's many problems. 
In the recent history, we've seen that cancers have been subdivided into even more diseases as we've learned more about the genetics of cancer. I would actually change your question a little bit. We've actually learned a tremendous amount about cancer in the last 20 years with the molecular biology revolution. And this has really fueled the development of a lot of new therapies. In the last 20 years, we've seen so many new drugs get approved, many more than in the previous 80 to 100 years. But go back to the, the root of your question. I think there's a lot of reasons why cancer is such a difficult problem. Can I ask you to define what exactly is a cancer? So there's not one clearly defined definition of cancer, but I think a reasonable way of cancer is that it's when our normal tissues go bad and that is they develop genetic lesions or genetic problems that make them grow and don't, then they don't stop growing. And when that happens, they actually invade into adjacent structures, they cause damage to our normal organs, they spread to different parts of the body. That's what cancer really is. So if I could ask you, in today's world, what is the current standard of care when that happens? The standard of care is really surgery because surgeons are the real people who can cure people. That's how all us medical types view it. You know, we need the surgeon, they'll cut it out and it'll be over. <laughs> right? We'll get into that later, but Dr. Eilber, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about Certis Oncology, how you got started, what your position is in the market, and what you're doing for healthcare, and a little bit about your chairman's son, who I understand had something to do with the genesis of this operation. The idea behind Certis, the decisions to treat people are based on trials where large pools of patients are grouped into different treatments and they find out which one's better. And which one's better is the current standard of care. It's an odds game. They don't find out on the actual patient's tumor what works for that individual patient. And at a certain point, Arun and myself and other doctors, it's frustrating to just put patient on the next drug. You don't really have any idea if it works. And usually the response rates are lower as you go down the ladder. We wanted to change the paradigm where we could actually find out on the patient's tumor what works and what doesn't work for that patient. The best model to test whether a drug works or doesn't work in a patient is a live model, an in vivo model, where we put the tumor in the mouse. And the best model in that situation is where they put the tumor in the same location in the mouse that it arises in the patient because it responds to the drugs, you get a more accurate picture about what'll happen. So if you test on my tumor in the mouse and the drug doesn't work, it's not gonna work in me. If it works in the mouse, it has an excellent chance of working. It's the best model that exists. Haven't they been doing that in a Petri dish for many years? They have, you can kill anything in a Petri dish. It's very unreliable. It does sometimes give you some ideas, but it's not very reproducible. The mouse model is the best personalized model a patient can have before going to the clinic. When you give systemic treatments, it's based on statistical assumptions, but it tells you nothing about the individual patient. And what Certis really tries to do is to individualize and personalize treatment decisions and to help streamline. You don't get drugs that are ineffective and lead to unnecessary toxicity. And it's trying to get a faster, cleaner pathway for treatment choices for patients. Once you've implanted a foreign tumor, the surveillance of the recipient animal organism, in this case a mouse, you would think would automatically kill and destroy any foreign substance being implanted into it. How do you then determine whether the death of the tumor is related to the surveillance of that particular mouse 
or whether it's related to the various chemo or immunotherapy that you're giving to treat that particular tumor. We use immunodeficient mice so that you don't get a rejection of the foreign tissue that comes in. It's the same thing in patients who get organ transplants. They have to go on immunosuppression to make sure your immune system doesn't reject the foreign tissue that's coming in. It does not impact your ability to assess targeted drugs or traditional chemotherapies. It does have an impact on testing immunotherapy, which is something that we're working on developing the model. The other unique aspect of the model is the orthotopic or the location of the tumor. That is definitely unique to this company. It's a skill set that it's very difficult to get the tumors into the same location in the mice as in the patient. Meaning if it's colon cancer, you're actually implanting it into the colon of a mouse? Yes. If I'm a drug company and I have a drug that I test in the lab in cell lines, and I think it works on colon cancer, say. If I want to take that drug to clinical trial, the last test before it can go to clinical trial is, does it work in human tumors and mice? I mean, that's the standard of care. The premise was, why can't we individualize the best tests out there? Why can't we do that for individual patients? I mean, that's the big difference here is the perception in the past was it's too hard, it's too cumbersome, you can't do it for the individual patient. But how do you roll that out for the millions of people just in this country alone that have cancer? Well, first of all, I don't think everybody does need it. Dr. Singh and I cheated a difficult tumor that doesn't have a lot of great standard therapies for them. And the response rates to the best therapies available are in the range of 30%. So our patient population fits well for this. If you have a 30% response rate, the drugs are toxic, and then you move down the list of these other drugs. So in other words, if you will, a garden variety type of cancer that is well known to respond 90% of the time to drug X, there's no point in actually doing this study in a mouse. It's more of those tumors that may be fraught with more difficult treatment decisions. Yes, or... So say breast cancer, right? I mean, you take the therapy or any common malignancy where the response rates are good, say it's 80%. That means 20% don't respond. So the situation where the model becomes important are if you don't respond to that first-line therapy. And that's actually a lot of patients. We see a lot of these patients in our clinic who fail standard run-of-the-mill cancer, should have responded, and they haven't, and now they're in a tough spot. Unusual tumor type tumor type that doesn't respond to the traditional therapies available or patients that have failed kind of first-line therapies. It's an added tool that can help strategize for the individual patient about what would work down the line. So, Fritz, are you basically brought in kind of late in the phases that a cancer patient is going through as opposed to, I mean, if it were someone in my family, I'd want to start here, not wait to see if other sloppier methods work. I mean, I think that's the point. So if you think about it right now, the way that it's done, when you take out a patient's tumor, the tumor's just tossed. And that's the greatest opportunity to learn about your cancer down the line. So my preference, if I had my druthers and if we had unlimited resources, every single tumor at diagnosis, at needle biopsy, you would get a pathologic diagnosis and they would go ahead and treat you with standard of care, but you would grow it in case you needed it. Now, you may not need it, but if you did, it's mortalized in the mouse and you can test on it in the future. If it doesn't grow and you pop up with disease somewhere else, you could still biopsy that and grow that and test it. 
on that as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think earlier the better. It's still early in this process of the precision oncology. So it's not quite standard of care. It tends to be utilized more in refractory situations where it's a bit of a hustle to get it done. Will the insurance companies yet recognize the necessity for cataloging and warehousing tumors for future studies, or we're just not there at this juncture? I'll jump in and say that insurance companies haven't been known to be the first on the bandwagon for new technologies that can help patients. Unfortunately, they do not reimburse at this point. It took them decades to start reimbursing for genetic sequencing, which is very sad, but finally they did it. Fritz is right that the first step is to take the biopsy or core needle or surgical biopsy, create a model. And if that patient does respond well to therapy, we could cryopreserve it and it can be pulled out of cryopreservation in the future. And we're halfway there. If it engrafted, we have a model. We have that tissue. Biopsies are put in formula and they're gone to the pathologist and the rest of the material is thrown away. And within that tumor is the information that could be useful to get the best therapy for that patient. What should I be telling to my general surgeons, chest surgeons, pathologists? What should we be doing with these biopsy specimens currently? You just store it. Just like if you have a new baby and the, the cord blood, you take, you freeze it, and you put it in a freezer somewhere. Why not do that with your tumor tissue too? I mean, I do think that is a future. So when we do that at UCLA as part of the research, most of the tumors get snapped frozen now. The best scenario, obviously, is if you have a model of your tumor that's living. If you did, it's so easy and fast to test about you know XYZ therapy. I go see this doctor. He says, this therapy is going to work. I think of the story with my friend in New York whose mother had lung cancer that spread, well-to-do family. They had everybody and their mother talk about sequencing the tumor. And he called me up. There was 10 different recommendations about what to treat his mother with based on all these really smart people. And the only way to test it was in his mother. You know, they tried one, it didn't work. And they're like, oh, sorry. To me, that's not good enough. You know, you should be able to test it in a model rather than the patient. What is the turnaround time of taking a tumor, implanting it? Good question. Because here you have mom, God forbid, your child with cancer that's actively growing. And now you're waiting to find out which therapy works. How long is it going to take to get that answer? We did a study looking at that. I took all of the patients I operate on for one year. We put them in mice and I wanted to see a couple things. Which of my patient population does it actually grow in? Who would this potentially be useful for and how fast did it happen? We published that study, I don't know, three or four years ago. What we found in the type of tumor that we treat, uh, sarcomas, if you got preoperative radiation, so sometimes we give radiation prior to surgery, the tumor didn't grow, period. If you didn't get preoperative radiation therapy and we took it out, if it was an aggressive tumor, which are the types that need chemo, and it grew, the median interval to establishment in the mouse was 55 days, so fast. And those are the patients that need the treatment and it grows in. So those are the patients that actually would get chemotherapy anyway. Broadly speaking, it's about two to three months. It can vary longer and it can be quicker. Over the course of the year in our study, the median interval to establishment was 55 days. So you're going to start somebody on standard chemo in the interim. Right. And then when you have a more definitive answer, you may make a right turn or left turn accordingly. Say that standard care is A, and then the next line therapy is B, and the next line therapy is C and D. They can go ahead and get A. 
But in the meantime, you can test B, C, D, and E in their tumor and get that answer. So you're dual tracking it. Yeah, I mean, you can find out whether these drugs work or don't work. Everybody wants to find the drug that works. I get that. But it's almost as important to find out the drugs that don't work. These are tough therapies. They make people sick. And it takes time. Three to six months of a drug that's not going to work on your tumor is tough. Will an oncologist feel locked into a research protocol that would prevent them from making a 180 decision based on your findings? Will a patient be committed because they're part of a protocol? How does that enter into it? This is a test, just like we do CT scans or lab tests. This is just another test, but this gives us some more information and it helps to guide the treatment. Nothing's written in stone that you absolutely must do this or that, but it helps in cases where there's therapeutic uncertainty. It can help the oncologist say, hey, look, A looks a lot better than B, C, and D because A shrinks the tumor 90% in the mouse. B, C, and D actually are equivocal, and there's actually growth that we see in the mouse model. So if I see that, it's, it's not too hard to decide which one I'm going to pick. Arun and I have a patient. She was one of the first people with the, the model. She had a tumor type that was a Ewing sarcoma. And the standard of treatment for Ewing's is 14 months. At the time of surgery, I took out her tumor and we grew it. And then she went on to get her 14 months of chemo, right? Which is the standard of care. Her tumor grew really fast. Three months of her, 14 months of therapy. We tested the drug that she was getting and it didn't work. And we found a couple of nice targeted drugs that worked. Arun was treating this patient. He couldn't really pull that patient off at that point of the standard of care. But she did fail ultimately, which was the model predicted. And the drugs that we found didn't work for her. But yeah, the question is, could you pull him off a standard protocol? At this point, it's a little tough to do that. I think the room, you can comment on that one. This thing will work for the vast majority of people. And you have no idea if the one patient that you have is the one-off or that 5 or 10% that the standard doesn't work for. You know, the mouse model can certainly uh, inform about that, but it's by no means definitive. It's still a model. It's still a test. It's hard for me as a practicing oncologist to say, hey, no, we're not going to do the standard of care. Because honestly, in, in a lot of the standard care people are cured. You know, it's hard to deviate from that. In that patient, though, because it grew fast in the mouse and because the standard care didn't work in her, we were worried. And we had already tested a couple other targeted drugs, which are non-toxic, that could potentially work in her and ended up working. So, yes, at this point, I think it's hard to just buck the standard of care completely. And I don't want to discourage people from getting the standard of care. But this does give options down the line, and it can inform your risk in the future. In fact, we did a study where I took out just the simple ability of the tumor to grow in the mouse is predictive of outcome in the patient. So we took one tumor type, and I took them all to the lab, and we were growing them in mice. If the tumor didn't grow in the mice, in this particular tumor type, those patients did really well. If the tumor grew in the mouse, but I couldn't passage it, immortalize it, in other words, down to the next mouse and the next mouse and the next mouse. So it grew initially, but it didn't continue to grow after that. That survival was kind of in the middle. And when I could grow it in the mouse and serially passage it to subsequent tumors, those patients, they did not do well. Just the simple ability to grow in the mouse was predictive of the patient outcome. So if it grew in the mouse and I could serially passage it, that's the patients that need the treatment. That's the group that you need to find a therapy. Well, that's fascinating. So it automatically tells you which tumor is most robust 
and most resistant just on how well it grows. In fact, those were all uniformly high-grade tumors. So by pathology, there was no difference in those. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Peter, I'd like to drill down a little bit more on Certus and how this got formed and what the market is like. Is this available all over the place, or are you guys unique? We'll be back in 30 seconds. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtcocom slash a moment of your time. Okay, uh, we're back with Peter Elman at Certus Oncology. And uh, Peter, how did Certus get started? And what is your position in the healthcare market? Fritz and Arun started talking about a patient of our chairman, Jim Berglund, and his son, Barney, got diagnosed with sarcoma, went to UCLA, and Fritz and Arun had already done a lot of work in the research of uh, orthotopic PDX models, and Jim wanted to try anything to save his son's life. They started fairly late in Barney's diagnosis. Barney didn't make it. His tumor lives on in our tumor bank, and we're doing a lot of research with it. But Jim was quite devastated and didn't understand why this technology wasn't available, except for research. Fritz and Arun explained it's research starts first, and to get into the clinical area requires a lot of effort. You need a license, you need a whole different company. Research is very different performing clinical assays. But Jim, at 80 years old, made a commitment. So other parents wouldn't go through what he went through. And together with Fritz and Arun, committed to forming the company Certus and looking for a crazy CEO like me that would form the thing, raise a lot of money and develop a lab and get licensed to implement this very technical system of orthotopic xenografts. Now, xenografts or PDX models, mostly used by pharmaceutical and biotech companies to test their drugs in preclinical trials before they spend a billion and a half dollars in human trials. They want to know if their drugs are going to work. They don't want to waste money. And only 12% of drugs that go into clinical trials succeed to get FDA approval. So $500 billion in the last 10 years have been put into these trials to get 350 FDA drugs. So the models that they were using were not clinically relevant. They would kill cancer in a dish or kill it in a mouse model, but they weren't effective in humans because the models were not reflective of what would happen in a human. At Certus, we purchased from these companies very expensive mice that have almost no immune system. And they're put in special compartments called vivariums, which you have to double suit up like you're going into surgery, like we were at a hospital. 
because any germs that would go in there would kill the whole colony. So we're basically treating these little patients and doing microsurgical implantation of tiny, tiny bits of tumor and putting it in the orthotopic, which is just a fancy word for the correct place. So if Fritz does a surgery and takes a little tiny piece out of a tissue, we're going to stitch it in to that same place on the mouse. So how do we even see whether it's growing, right? These, these mice are very fragile. A few years ago, we would do a laparotomy, open them up and do calipers and measure it, and they would die. They're so fragile. We actually have a mouse MRI. We're buying our second one. <laughs> it's like a little mouse hospital that we have if you come to Sorrento Valley. All these mice have to be treated just like human beings. They can't be stressed out. Their food must be irradiated. We have to check them every day to make sure that they're not stressed or that their tumors don't grow to a large size that could harm them. We're under very strict regulations to make sure that our processes are animal friendly and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, the pharmacology study that we decide on is done with the patient's oncology team with advisement from our scientific and medical advisory boards of which these two gentlemen chair because it's new to them. And a lot of times the doctor will go, gee, I could test outside the patient's body. Where do I start? And sometimes they, they need to understand that they could test drugs that are off-label, that maybe the genomic sequencing indicates that a drug that's not labeled for that particular cancer, but might work in combinatorial therapy for that individual's genomic sequence, well, we could test that. And we could get INDs for, you know, approval with the data that's from the mouse models. Does a tumor that you inject or surgically implant into a mouse have the same likelihood to travel to other organs in a mouse as it does with a human? That's a really good question. A xenograft is established as the standard of care in terms of the bottom line testing about whether any drug works for a certain type of cancer in the published literature and has been so for a long period of time. They are humanizing, taking human immune systems and putting them in the mice to study the immunotherapy. And we have a strategic relationship with them. The current models are good for the targeted drugs and the chemotherapy, not so good for immunotherapy. But we have these humanized mice that we're experimenting with to test the immunotherapy. The point about the orthotopic, why that's such a big deal is the tumor, when it's put into the mouse, does have the ability to metastasize like it does in the human. So most studies are done when they put it just subcutaneously in the mouse, just under the skin somewhere, and they measure the tumor and did it work or not. Those tumors don't metastasize, and there's actually a lot of data showing that they respond to drugs differently based on the location where you put the tumor. If you're going to do it, the best model is the orthotopic. I mean, that's when I started this process, I was like, look, if we're going to do this, I'm going to do the best model because I'm going to get the most accurate answer. Meaning placing a breast cancer in the breast of the mouse. PhD Jonathan does glioblastomas. They put it in the brain of the mouse. Right. Why add another variable into your analysis? If you're going to go through all this effort to do it, I mean, you might as well just do the best one. That was my thinking. The other thing I want to just comment on in terms of Pete's describing the company Jim Berglund has, was a very successful entrepreneur, started lots of companies and stuff. I don't even know all of them. Instead of just giving money to a university or something like that, he wanted to create a company that everybody would have access to. 
he wanted to create something that was more broadly distributed that would empower the patient and not lock somebody into cedars or or whatever. He wanted to create, and he's been pushing us all along to a viable company that can serve anybody, not just if you have to go to this location or that location. Can a patient request this or does it have to come from a doctor? Well, we do have patients inquire. And the first thing we say is we've got to talk to your oncologist. If the oncologist is not on board, it's not going to work because they need to be leading the effort. They're the ones who best know that patient. So Pete, what's your penetration in the medical community? I mean, is this something that's sort of catching on the academic side first or are there certain locales nationally, internationally, where they're knocking at your door? What's the story in the status of the company currently? Well, I haven't had any sleep in five years, Steve, okay? So let me tell you. I know how that goes. <laughs> Our model is patients, but we're creating quite a tumor bank of cryopreserved models. So of course, pharma and biotech want to test their new drugs out. And we're getting a lot of good response from some very large companies that, you know, we're not huge. We're about 25 people, but we made the decision that in four weeks, we're moving to a lab across the street, double in size, and we've got the funding to put millions of dollars of new equipment and imaging equipment and radiation. So we're going to be, as Fritz alluded to, getting into the humanized mouse area where we could start testing the immuno-oncology therapies coming out. And that is twice as hard as the stuff that we're doing now because we're infusing immune systems into these super immunodeficient animals, human immune system, and doing these new experiments. It's not going to be prevalent, Steve, for a while. What we want to do is prove to the community that it works. More accepted, and then we'll work on a business plan where we could spread this around. We don't have to do it by ourselves. That wasn't the point to be the sole owner of this great idea. The idea is to get the best therapy to patients. Where are you getting the funding currently? How are you being funded? I mean, this is a huge project, obviously, that's only going to be hungrier and hungrier for cash. And where can Bill and I invest? (laughs) We did our Series A with friends and family. And we recently, we just closed Series B, which is a fairly good amount of money, not any institutional money, probably 70, you know, high net worth individuals that have been successful in their life and care about cancer. Everybody that I know that's over 50 years old has somehow been affected by cancer. You know, 80% of all diagnosed cancers are people over 55, and 40% of everybody alive today will be diagnosed with cancer. It's the mission first, of course, right? I mean, for something like this. Yeah. Believe me, we could always use more money, but right now we're very good. I'm not saying that we're not going to require more down the road, but... You've got everything you need right now. But the reality is, who cares how much at the end of the day you have to spend if this is going to help save hundreds of thousands of lives, right? In order to be a broader concept, one of the things that you guys are going to have to do is get insurance companies to realize that the multi-year process that people go through where maybe they eradicate a cancer or they think they do, and you know they have to go and check every six months to see if it comes back, and three years later, whammo, they get some bad news and they're back in the process again. I would think that it would be a level of forethought, and I hate to use the term logic when I'm talking about insurance companies, But it would be logical that they would want to see something like this work because it would give them eventually a better looking actuary table. 
Yeah, I think Peter alluded to it a little earlier about the fact that it took maybe 15 to 20 years for insurance companies to start paying for a genetic sequencing of patients' tumors. You know, the funny thing about genetic sequencing is that if you find a mutation, theoretically, you can use a drug to target that mutation. However, the big secret about the mutations is you have no idea if that mutation actually contributes to the growth of a tumor or is just a bystander, just a mutation that serves no purpose. And yet that actually has gotten approved. Now, this is actually a practically useful test. And so by in itself, it stands on its own, but insurances don't work that way. They're going to require a lot of data and a lot of correlative studies, both positive and negative, to really say that they're going to pay for this type of approach. And the relative cost, I'm sure, has to factor in, right? Yeah, that goes back to cost of the drugs. Yeah, I mean, just simply, if you know that drugs aren't going to work, you can automatically save you tons of money and heartache and all that kind of stuff. Does this technology work for other diseases as well? We're totally focused on oncology. I get calls all the time because models are made for other diseases. Even last week, I got very prestigious centers to do other disease models, but we are laser focused, Bill, on oncology. We are set on being experts in the areas, you know, and the cancer types and anything else is a distraction. Other companies may be interested in the way we do our models, and I'd be happy to invite them in and help them advance their science through collaboration. But we're going to be really busy with what we have. And with the biotech and pharma coming in, we're pretty overwhelmed right now. So we're going through a big hiring spurt, a new move to a facility where we're quadrupling the capacity of our vivarium because it's all about number of mice that we could do. So we're going from 2,200 to 10,000. And we're buying these half a million dollar machines to do imaging, high throughput, and have surgical suites where we have teams to do the engraftment. The last 12 months and the next 24 months are whirlwinds. So we invite you down. You can take a look. I think you'll be pretty impressed. I would love to see it. I'd be thrilled. It's a big job that we have to do here. And you know what, guys? We really appreciate what you bring to it. We, of course, appreciate the time that you devoted to this. We know you have a day job. Dr. Albert, how do people follow you if they want to reach you? Oh, man, I'm not a social media guy. They reach me through Peter or Arun is how they reach me. <laughs> Let's go to Arun. Arun, do you have a way for people to follow you or reach you? UCLA Sarcoma Center does have a website that you can find Dr. Albert and I. Something tells me, Peter, you're going to have a, a different answer here. How do people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about CERTUS? All you have to do is Google CERTUS Oncology and you'll either go to LinkedIn, Facebook, info at certisoncology.com for any private messages to any of us. We can get that email to the proper person. But we're pretty, now we have our marketing department, so we're on all the social networks. So follow Certis Oncology Solutions and you'll get a lot of information about us. Now it's going to be interesting to follow it. I'm hoping you guys will come back in a year or so and tell us how you're doing and we'd love to have you back. Also, big thanks to my friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. Steve, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. It's wonderful and fascinating, and keep up the great work. We're Still Practicing is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley, mastering by Steve Rickyberg. A special thanks to Mark Grosvenor for arranging our panel today. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick, and 
Don't forget to hit that follow button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.